Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now this is the section we're going to spend a little bit of time on here tonight, but what I want to do as we get into this tonight is we're going to read this passage over and over and over again, but after I help you see a little bit more foundation from the rest of the Gospels. Many of us have heard preachers preach on this passage, and we read it like this. Jesus walked along the shore. He sees Peter and Andrew. He says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they just left their nets and followed him, right? And then goes a little further, seeing James and John, and they leave their dad and their nets, and they just follow him. Isn't that how we've had it? Kind of, He just kind of walked along the shore and said, hey, follow me. And they amazingly, kind of like zombies, almost like, okay, Lord, we'll just come follow you. Well, this passage is going to come alive tonight. When you let the rest of the Gospels fill in the rest, and you're going to find out this isn't the first time that Peter and Andrew meet Jesus. He doesn't just walk along and say, hey guys, follow me. And then all of a sudden they start following. I want you to be reminded, this is not the first time they've seen Jesus. Not even close. Go back with me to John chapter 1. <clears throat> in John chapter 1, we're going to start in verses 30, 35 through 42. This is during the ministry of John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, verse 35, the next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now earlier in verse 29, he'd already said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now here again he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then the two disciples heard him say this. Sorry. Yeah, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now one of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So when John the Baptist is out preaching and preparing the way for Jesus, he sees Jesus. Remember, Jesus, John the Baptist's ministry was in Judea. Galilee's not in Judea. John the Baptist is doing his ministry in Judea, and he points to Jesus in Judea and says, That's the Lamb of God. One of his disciples that was following John the Baptist there were two that heard him say this, and they left John and went to become disciples of Jesus. One of them was Andrew. And Andrew says, hey, where are you staying, Master? He said, come and see. He saw where he was. And then he goes, gets his brother, we know him as Peter, and comes and brings him to Jesus. And, of course, Jesus says, hey, your name's, name's Simon. One day you're going to be rock man. You're going to be Peter. So Jesus had already met Peter and John. Now, also, uh, James and John most likely had already met Jesus as well. You're going to see that in just a little bit, how that becomes a little more clear. That when, so when we read Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, this is not the first time that Andrew and Peter have seen Jesus. So let's read it again now, knowing that Jesus has already met Andrew and Peter in Judea. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. It reads differently now, doesn't it? Knowing that they had already met Jesus and had an encounter with Jesus and hung out with Jesus in Judea for a little while. Saw where he was staying. We don't know how long he hung out. they hung out with him. But at some point, they go back to home. They go back to Galilee where they live. And they are actually going back to work, what they did, fishing. And Jesus now, if you remember from our earlier part of our study of Matthew, at a certain point sets up his main headquarters, if you will, of his ministry in Galilee. 
While he's doing that, he sees these guys that he'd already met earlier in Judea, and he sees them fishing, and he says to them, Hey guys, come follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they leave what they did to, I'm going to show you it a little bit more later tonight, but they start to become more full-time disciples than part-time disciples. They, they had become disciples of Jesus, kind of. They were kind of part-time, but they're going to become full-time at this point. But it reads totally different now when you realize they'd already met Jesus. They already kind of knew who he was. They'd been introduced that he was the Messiah. And so, or at least been told that maybe this might be the Messiah. So when Jesus says, come follow me, it makes a little more sense that they would leave. But actually, there's still more to it than that. Go back with me to John chapter 1. Now, we're not going to read these sections, but I want you to look at the headings and understand that John chapter 1, verses 29 through chapter 3, verse 24, has to have happened prior to Matthew chapter 4, 12, and another passage I'm going to show you in just a second. So let's just look real quick at John chapter 3, verse 24. At John chapter 3, verse 24... The scripture says, for John had not yet been put in prison. So everything prior, remember John's gospel is chronological. Everything prior to John chapter 3 verse 24 happened before John was put in prison, correct? All right, now go back to John chapter 1 and start in verse 29. Next day, he he saw Jesus, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as we already read in verse 35, he sees Jesus again. The next day, two of his disciples hear him say, The Lamb of God. One of them is who? Andrew. Leaves, becomes a disciple of Jesus. He go gets, gets his, Peter, his, his brother Peter. Then, of course, we see he calls Philip and Nathaniel. Philip goes gets Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He said, you'll come and see. What happens in chapter 2? The wedding of Canaan and Galilee. Now, they're back up in Galilee at this point. And it says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana and Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his, what? So Jesus is at the wedding with some disciples at this time. We don't know who the disciples fully are. But most likely, it would include who? Andrew and Peter, probably James and John, Philip and Nathaniel. They're there, and they see the miracle of him turning the water into wine. Jump over what happens next in verse 13. He cleanses the temple. Actually, you see in verse 12, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Then the pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen. So Peter and John and Andrew and James and these guys all go with Jesus down to Jerusalem, and they see him clean the temple out. Look at verse 22. When, they therefore, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this when he was cleaning the temple out, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, John chapter 3, verse 24, says that up to this point, John hadn't been put in prison yet. So, everything prior to John chapter 3, verse 24, happened before John had been put in prison. So, that means before John had been put in prison, Jesus meets Peter and Andrew, James and John, Nathaniel and Philip. They go up with him to Capernaum. Arcana and Galilee and see the miracle of the, turning the water into wine. They come down with him. They see him clean the temple out. Go back with me now to Matthew chapter 4 and look at verse 12 real quickly. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. All right. He set up his headquarters there. Go over with me now to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, look at verses 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe 
in the gospel. Now, before I go any further, when Jesus was at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, he remember he had already been in Galilee prior to this here we're reading in Mark chapter 1. When his mother said, hey, uh, they ran out of wine, what did Jesus say? My time is not yet. But now, after doing the miracle in Cana of Galilee, after leaving there with his disciples, coming down and cleaning the temple out, and then after going back into Galilee and starting his public ministry, he says the time is at hand. And he now starts to make himself public. Keep reading. Verse 16. Passing alongside, Mark chapter 1, verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So do you understand now when Jesus, we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 24, walks along the shore, sees these guys in their boats mending their nets, and he calls them and says, come follow me. And they drop everything and follow him. It wasn't because, oh man, he had some powerful persuasion to get. No, they had already met him. They'd already been hanging out with him. They'd already watched him do the miracle in the Canaan Galilee. They'd already seen him clean the temple out and hear the things. They had been part-time disciples, but for some reason, when they went back to Galilee, they just went back to work. Back to their livelihoods, back to doing what they did, working with their dad, catching fish. But when Jesus now starts to announce the kingdom, and begin his public ministry. When? After John was put in prison. And he starts to do his ministry. He now starts to call the disciples from a part-time ministry following, if you will, to a full-time following. I'm going to get into that in a little bit more to help you understand that. But we still don't have enough information. I think Luke's account of all this brings it all together. Go with me to Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing, this is Jesus, by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. The other gospels say mending their nets, same thing. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners. By the way, their partners are going to be uh, identified real quick. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that the boat began to sink. And when, the Simon, sorry, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were, here the partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. I'll make you fishers of men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So was it really that he just kind of walked along and said, hey, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We always read it that he yelled it. Don't we kind of read it that he kind of yelled it? But the gospel accounts, when you put them together, help us see. It actually was as he was walking along the shore, he was teaching. And there was such a crowd that were there to hear him. He realized a couple of things. I can do a better job if I can get a little space between me and the people to teach. And secondly, if you don't know this or not, but may some of you do, the acoustics, when you speak across water, are way better. You ever notice that you can yell across the lake and they can hear because the sound hits the water and just goes? He gets in a boat, goes off the shore a little bit, and he can speak and the voice just comes, resonates off the lake and people can hear him. But then he turns to Peter and says, hey, um, let's go out, catch some fish. Peter says, look, we fished all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, we'll do it. They throw the net over, and all of a sudden, so many fish come into it that they just can't pull it in. They grab James and John. They yell to them, say, come on, come help us. And there's, both boats are sinking because there's so many fish. 
They get to the shore, and Peter falls down on his knees and says, Get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, From now on, you come follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. They left everything and followed him. See, for years, I read Matthew by itself. And I just felt like Jesus had some amazing power that he could just say, come follow me. And they dropped everything and just followed him. But actually, as we've just seen, they had already met Jesus in Judea when John the Baptist introduced Andrew to him. And then he went and got his brother. And then the others, because their partners most likely were there, James and John, and they meet Jesus. They go back up into Galilee. And while he's in Galilee... Because these guys were part-time disciples, they were there most likely at the wedding and they saw the miracle of the turning the water into wine. And then they go with him back down to the Passover and they see him clean the temple out. But then when he goes back to Galilee to set up his ministry and his home base for his ministry, they just go back to fishing. And Jesus says, I don't want you to go back to fishing. I want you to come follow me and become full-time disciples. Not here and there, once in a while, we're going to get into that in a little bit more tonight, but before I do, I want, to, I want to talk about something that comes out of this passage that unfortunately I have seen people abuse, and it doesn't line up with the whole of Scripture. So go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They not just left their fishing, they left their dad. And I've heard some people say, and they're going to use the scripture to back it up, and I'm going to show you that scripture in just a second. I am so devoted to Jesus, I don't care about my family anymore. And trust me, there are people that try to sound spiritual. I'm, I'm focused on Jesus, and my family falls by the wayside. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, go to, go to Matthew chapter 19. Look at verse 29. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. And Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. And there are those who claim that their devotion to Jesus is so much that they just, you know what, I don't care about my family because Jesus is everything. Well, that's a problem because that doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 3 through 8. In this passage where Paul is dealing with instructions about how to take care of widows in the church, he says in verse 3, 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Bible actually says, folks, that if we truly follow Jesus, the results of that will be that our families will be blessed. Doesn't the Bible say that those are going to serve in leadership as preachers and teachers and elders and overseers in the church after having first shown that they can do it in the home, then let them serve in leadership? Yes, and then we're going to get to that in a second. There will be times that if we have to choose between serving Jesus or following family, we must serve Jesus. But don't think that full devotion to Jesus means I ignore my family and I don't care about my family because I'm just serving Jesus. That's not what the Bible teaches. And not only that, sometimes God tells people, I want you to do your ministry at home. Go to Mark chapter 5, I'll show you. Mark chapter 5, look at verses 14 through 20. This is after Jesus heals this man with the legion of demons and cast the 
demons into the pigs, and of course the pigs all commit suicide. The herdsmen fled, verse 14 of Mark 5, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed uh, man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart, to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he didn't permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Here, this guy says, I want to leave family and friends and home for you. And Jesus says, actually, I want you to go home. You're going to see this tonight as we get into this study on stop becoming part-time followers and becoming full-time followers of Jesus. That when you become a full-time follower of Jesus, he gets to determine what your ministry is and where you go. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, he gets to call the shots. But I just want to just warn you and at the same time give you a little wisdom as well in case you deal with anybody who tends to, well, I just... You know, I'm not, I don't care about my family because I'm just devoted to Jesus. The Bible says if you're devoted to Jesus, your family will be blessed. Now, as you're going to see later on in our study, as we deal with what it looks like to be a full-time follower of Jesus, there may be times that you have to choose between family and following Jesus. In those instances, you choose following Jesus. In this instance, James and John, in order to follow Jesus, they left their father. Now, he was still didn't take care of us. He was able to work. But be careful of those who say, well, I just followed Jesus and, you know, my family, I'm just leaving them behind. All right. So let's let's take a look at this. Jesus had actually when he calls these guys to stop being part time disciples to become full time disciples from part time followers to full time followers. He had already done a whole lot to show them his power and revealed to them his power. I wrote in my notes here, Jesus had done much to show them his power and who he was. What will it take for you and I to stop being part-time followers and become full-time followers? Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not talking about becoming a pastor or a preacher versus a school teacher or an engineer. I'm talking about wholehearted following versus part-time following. I'm going to ask you a trick question. Is Jesus first in your life? Now, be careful before you answer. I want you to answer to yourself quietly. Is Jesus first in your life? See, we want to say yes. But here's the thing. When you say that Jesus is first, that means some other things are second. He doesn't want anything else to be second. When Jesus calls us to follow, he wants to be everything. You understand what I'm saying? He wants to be everything. I, I, as I travel and speak to the church around, especially in America, one of the saddest things is Jesus in following Christ and their Christianity, I guess that's the best way to put it, is just a part of who they are. And I got my work and I got my church and I got my sports and I got my family and, you know, and that's a part-time follower, not a full-time follower. You see, I, I'm supposed to be a husband and a father, but I need to be a husband and follower because of my relationship with Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? It's not Jesus is first and my wife is second. Jesus is everything, and that affects my wife, that affects my children, that affects my friends, that affects everything. When we become a full-time follower of Jesus, he becomes everything in our life. And I'm going to just let the Spirit talk to you tonight. Because I'm going to share with you some scriptures, and I'm going to do my best to avoid doing what the preachers, unfortunately, mistakenly do. When we start getting into the topic we're going to get into tonight of becoming a full-time follower of Jesus, unfortunately, a lot of preachers feel like it's their job to tell you what that's going to look like. But that's the Holy Spirit's job and not mine. Remember how Jesus told Peter how he was going to die? And of course, he said, what about John? You know, how's he going to die? And Jesus says, what if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? You follow me. See, for some, 
full-time following of Jesus means that he may have you leave homes and family to follow him and to go, my brother and his wife. We're called by God to go back onto the mission field for a third time, leaving their two daughters back here. They're college age, but they believed God was saying it's time and they were ready and they went off to Thailand to follow. But that doesn't mean everybody's supposed to do that. So don't, as we get into these passages and deal with some of these topics, don't let somebody else tell you what following Jesus is supposed to look like for you. Let the Holy Spirit show you what it's supposed to look like for you. Oh, and don't you think that you have the right to tell somebody that they have to live their life like you're living yours? You let Jesus show you what that looks like. So let's take a look at some passages that really talk about the difference between being part-time and full-time. Go to Matthew chapter 19, that passage we went to earlier, but let's read a little bit further back, starting in verse 27. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30. Jesus had just said it's almost impossible for a rich person to get into heaven. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Let me ask you a question from this passage. Is there a possibility that full-time following of Jesus might require you to move? It might require you to move a lot. Now, does that mean that everybody's supposed to move? Years ago, this wonderful man, he was young in the faith, but tremendously gifted. He's already with the Lord. His name was Keith Green. He was a musician, and back in the 70s and the 80s, early 80s, he had a, he had ministry. I think he died in 83, but he was young. He would cut on fire for the Lord like you wouldn't believe, and he would do some amazing Christian concerts. Some of you probably remember Keith Green's music. It's powerful stuff. But one night at a concert, he got all excited, and he said this. He said, Jesus said, go into all the world. So unless you feel called to America, you all need to go. Get out of here. <laughs> and his, his handler said, you can't say that. He goes, I just feel it that strong. You know, like, no, let the Holy Spirit show you what it looks like. We already saw in Mark chapter 5, Jesus told him to go home. But will he call some to leave family and houses and lands? Let's be honest. Some of us are pretty excited about it. as we get older. We're going to get that homestead. We're going to get that piece of property and we're going to set up our homestead. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have such a thing, but hold it loosely. Because you have a master now that may say, but that's not fully what I want for you. You understand? It's not a wrong thing to have stuff. But if that stuff keeps you from being able to follow Jesus when he says, go, that's a problem. Are you ready to be ready to go if he says go? And again, that's between you and the Lord. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Look at verses 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd coming, sorry, a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now we're going to stop, keep reading in a second here. But let's deal with this first one. This guy comes up to him and says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, okay, understand what that means. If you're going to follow me, I don't have any place where I'm going to be set. If you think following me means you're going to go with me and stay somewhere, that's not the life you're going to live. Are you ready for that? By the way, let me ask you a real quick question. Um, when Jesus died, what was his estate sale like? Oh, they had it. They cast lots for the one piece of clothing that he had. Where did Jesus stay? Where was Jesus' house? Wherever he stopped, well, and we know that 
And Bethany was the place that he would stay for a few times because of Mary and Martha would house him. We do know that he did some ministry in the, up in the area around Peter and Peter's house. And actually, the archaeologists believe they've actually found where Peter's house was. And it looks like that they it kept having walls added and rooms added to it. It's because Jesus would teach there and preach there and he healed his mother-in-law and all that kind of stuff. By the way, there are some people that try to make Peter the first pope and that because if he's the first pope, he couldn't have been married, you know, because priests aren't supposed to marry. And it's interesting, though, that he had a mother-in-law. That's a horrible, horrible joke to have played on you if you're not married, but you still have a mother-in-law. But uh, um, Jesus didn't have any place. He didn't have any place that was his. His life and the ministry God had called for him required him to just always be on the move. Even when crowds were wanting him to stay in a certain area. You see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 and following, he gets up early one morning, goes off to pray. Disciples go looking for him. They find him. They say, everybody's looking for you. And after that time of prayer, he knew the father told him it's time to head to the next town. So this guy comes and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. He says, understand that might mean that you don't ever have anything in this life. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Now, I have, to, I have to be honest with you. I, I'm a minimalist. This, this is easy for me. I'm one of these guys that if I just had a bed and a chair, you know, and, and maybe my golf clubs, I'll be honest, and, and then and maybe, and maybe a couple other things. But for the most part, I don't, I, it's easy for me, but it's not for others. It, it might not be. But that doesn't mean that that's the life God's called you to. What's it look like for you? But then the next situation, look at verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, first off, this guy didn't come and say, Jesus, my dad just died. The funeral's tomorrow. Let me just do the burial and I'll be right there. No, his father was still alive. But in other words, what he was saying was, I want to follow you, but I really can't follow you until I'm done with my dad. Now, listen closely. This takes on many different shapes and forms. As a preacher and as a pastor for many years around this country, I've dealt with a lot of people who, and I'm not going to question their salvation, but they'll say they're born again. They say they trusted Jesus as their Savior. And as a pastor, I would then show them in the scriptures that the first thing the Bible says that we're to do, the first thing we're commanded to do is to show, identify with Jesus through our baptism. And I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that baptism is an immersion to identify with Jesus. And many times people have said, I can't do that because that would hurt my mama's feelings. You see, my mama raised me in a different denomination, and I was already baptized as a baby and if I got baptized in the way you're saying, now that I've trusted Christ, um, it will hurt her, and I can't do that. See, there will be times that you have to choose between following Jesus and what his word says and what your family says. And in those instances, you have to choose to follow Christ. The Bible actually says that the Pharisees, there were some that believed in Jesus but because of their fear of the other guys, they wouldn't follow. There are people out there today, folks, that they've had their eyes open to the truth. They know the truth, but there are, quote unquote, extenuating circumstances that keep them from following Jesus. We'll deal with that as we close tonight. That's a very serious topic. But again, you... Well, Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide households. Some family members will not be excited about you following Jesus. And in parts of the world, especially when they're coming out of the Muslim faith into Christianity, they lose everything when that happens. They're renounced by their family. They lose everything. They're spit on and they've lost their family. Are you willing to follow them even if that's what it means? Go to Matthew chapter, I don't know, go to Luke 9 first. Go to Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. Luke 9, 57 through 62. Same thing, but there's a little bit more information here in Luke, so I'm going to read it to you real quick. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. We know from Mark's, uh, Matthew's account that it was a scribe. 
Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. But another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, the Bible does say that there's some seed that falls on the rocky soil, springs up, sure looks like salvation, but trouble in this life makes them change their mind. The Bible says that some seed falls on the thorny soil, springs up, sure looks like salvation. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth, things in this life keep them from actually producing real fruit. There's not real salvation. Jesus himself even said, you need to count the cost before you decide to follow me. And many people today, especially in America, I believe in Jesus. I've seen people in bars go, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I got him tattooed right here. They a follower of Jesus or they just a quote unquote part time follower of Jesus. Again, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Are you willing to forsake all? Are you willing to forsake all? Go to Matthew 16. This is where Jesus asks us this. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then forfeits his soul? Well, what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Now, I want to talk to you real quick about denying yourself. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Or most likely doesn't mean what you think it means. See, a lot of times people hear about denying ourselves, and that means, well, I'm not going to eat chocolate during Lent, or I'm not going to watch TV this month, and we think that's denying ourselves. But actually, that's not what the Bible means by denying yourself. Let me explain what I mean. Go to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20, Jesus says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you think you can get closer to God... By denying yourself, now the Bible does talk about fasting, and we'll get to that in just a second, but we'll deal with that more when we get to chapter 6. But if you think you're going to get closer to God by denying yourself, you're actually not denying yourself, you're putting confidence in yourself. To deny yourself means to totally not depend on anything you do, but to fully depend on Jesus. That's how you get saved. You don't put any confidence in yourself. You deny your ability to save yourself and you say, Jesus, you're the only one that can save me. After we're saved, we have to daily say no to our flesh and rely by faith in the Lord Jesus. We don't lose our salvation, but we, since we're already sealed, but we need to daily stop trying to rely on myself to get better and believe that the Lord who began his work would finish it. And we'd say no to myself and yes to Jesus at all times. By the way, if I only can live my life by daily saying no, because another gospel account of this says deny yourself and take up your cross. What? Daily. If I only can do it daily by denying myself and being devoted fully to the Lord and trusting fully in the Lord, do you realize you can't be a disciple unless you're full time? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's really no such thing as a part time disciple. A part time follower of Jesus, the Bible says, is not a disciple. Those are the ones that are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? And say, I didn't know you. That's why Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Folks, the call to discipleship, I think, has not been really preached because it's not fun preaching. But when Jesus turned to these people and said, hey, count the cost before you do this. 
When you say, Lord, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, my life is yours, you no longer live for yourself. Well, Jim, where does it say that? 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that when we trust him as our Savior, we no longer live for ourselves. We totally live for him. And that's a daily process of saying, Lord, what would, you, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? How would you have me live? What would you want me to do? You show me. And, oh, by the way, I won't try to go do it. You empower me to do it as well. I am totally denying myself and resting in you. And that is a daily process. That's why we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart. That's why we're to lean not on our own understanding. In some of our ways, in all our ways, we're to acknowledge him. And he will direct our paths. Folks, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is the Christian life. Daily relying on the Lord. Daily not relying on the flesh. Daily walking in the Spirit. Listening to him. That's why we need to pray without ceasing. That's why we need to know the word and study the word and pray the word. That's why we need to learn how to walk in the Spirit and the armor of God. That's why you have to understand to be a follower of Jesus means it is full time or it's not at all. By the way, that kind of preaching isn't going to fill sanctuaries or stadiums. That kind of preaching is not going to fill stadiums. And Jesus, if you notice, wasn't in a hurry to draw big crowds. Actually, he tended to go in the other direction when the big crowds started to come. Do you ever notice that? We already read tonight, he saw crowds, he went to the other side of the lake. Everyone's looking for you. Let's go to the next town. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. A lot of people left. And he turned to the 12 and said, you're free to go too. But yet, what do we do in our churches? We design our churches in such a way where we try to keep everybody happy, everybody satisfied. We don't want to lose anybody out the back door. And so we're not willing to preach what the scripture really says about what it means to be a full-time follower of Jesus. Because we may lose members. Our numbers might go down. I've actually found the more you're faithful to preach the word, God will do a work. And I'd rather have a small church full of people on fire, full of the spirit, than a big church that's a waste of time and will amount to nothing when I stand before him on the judgment seat. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 24, or 19 through 21 and then verse 24. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal or hurricanes destroy. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say it might be there. Where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know what's interesting? We all love to quote, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, right? Does anybody know the context of that passage? Money. Money. Go to Hebrews chapter 13 real quick. Hebrews 13, look at verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The context of I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you is don't love money. One thing we've started to do in our family is we look, we look at money now as a tool. We just say it's just a tool. Do we, need to, do we need to spend it? Spend it. Well, what if we don't have enough? It's just a tool. And if we need it, God will provide it. Just do what he tells. And by the way, when you give it away with that attitude, he gives it more and more. And we just, I've been teaching my kids and it's been so awesome to see. I actually have a son that let his sister borrow interest-free $5,000. 
You have to realize when he did this, he was 16 years old and he had been working at Chick-fil-A and he'd saved up this money, but his sister needed some money for graduate school and mom and dad didn't have any more. We paid for college, but we told her graduate school. So she borrowed some from her grandparents and she borrowed some from her brother and her brother at 16 years old gave her, his sister $5,000 interest free and said, pay it back whenever. You know why? Because it's just money. It's just a tool. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Look, let me ask you a question. Is money keeping you from following Jesus? Is money keeping you from following Jesus? Oh, I trust you, Lord. Lord, you're my Lord. You're my Savior. And then we worry about whether or not we're going to pay a bill. And what does Jesus say? Don't worry about that stuff. I take care of the birds. I take care of the grass. Aren't you of more value than that? Why are you worried about that stuff if you really trust me? You really trust me? I'm going to close this section by simply saying this. Be willing to follow Jesus, but let Jesus show you as you go what following him looks like for you. Many of us grew up in church singing, I surrender all. You remember that? I surrender all. I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And then we walked down the aisle and we said, Lord, it's all yours. And then we took it back. There's nothing wrong with singing, I surrender all, as long as your attitude is, Lord, whatever you ask for, I will give. You understand? He doesn't want us to have nothing. He just wants us to be willing to give it when he asks for it. When our kids were little, we dedicated to them to the Lord. We had a ceremony in church where we gave them to the Lord. And many times over the years, I've taken them back and had to have another little ceremony in my head and say, no, Lord, I have to trust you again with them. And Lord, folks, you'll beat yourself up if you think, okay, Lord, I am now giving you everything. He, He said in John chapter 16, verse 12, I have more to say to you more than you can now bear. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth and he'll show you what is to come. In other words, have an attitude that says what Lord you want is yours. And when he asks, then be willing to give. But until then, don't let anybody else tell you what following looks like. You listen to the scriptures and let it tell you what it is that he's wanting you to trust him in and then follow him full time. Go back to Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 23 through 25. Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's important. What was he praying? Proclaiming the gospel of what? Of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now Jesus goes through Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And in doing so, Jesus healed people and cast out demons. Now listen closely. The healings and the casting out of the demons had a purpose. And it was to show that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan. Remember, he's announcing the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. These prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming king and the kingdom and how there's going to be a... A time when there's going to be the king in charge and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness and all these things are going to be restored. And as he's announcing the kingdom, who's the king of the earth at this time? Satan. He's the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air. So when Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God is at hand, he also at the same time cast out demons healed people's sicknesses, and a lot of the sicknesses were tied to Satan. They're obviously tied to Satan just all the way back to the garden because of death happening from that point on. But also some of it was tied to, as we see from the scriptures, Satan's influence in people's lives. That's another lesson for another time, but there is a lot of truth to sickness being tied. Don't think that all sickness means you got demon possession or oppression or whatever. Don't, don't go there. But there is some truth to that. So when Jesus came pronouncing and announcing the kingdom of God to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was greater than the kingdom of Satan, he visibly demonstrated his authority over Satan. Now you say, where do you get that? Guess where? Go to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, look at verses 22 through 32. 
It says, then a demon-possessed, oppressed man was blind, who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? By the way, when they said, can this be the son of David, what were they actually saying? Is this the, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that's going to come from David? Is this the one who's going to sit on David's throne? Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. By the way, Abraham Lincoln wasn't the first one to say it. And if Satan casts out Satan... He's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever not, does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, he'll be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We're going to, in the time we have left, try to start to begin to deal with this topic of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a deep topic. We'll continue it next week. But let me just lay this foundation for you. Jesus came in to show that the kingdom of God was greater than the kingdom of Satan. And how he did it was casting out the strong man, if you will. The Pharisees said, though, that he was casting out the demons by what? By Satan's power. Go with me to John chapter 3. By the way, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 9, you'll see in verses 32 through 34, this isn't the first time that they said this about Jesus. They said it earlier in Matthew 9, here in Matthew 12. But go to John chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus meets with this, Nic- uh, this Pharisee named Nicodemus at night. By the way, that was the first Nick at night. That was free. In John chapter 3... Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Did you catch that? The Pharisees that were publicly saying he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebul, actually in private... In their Pharisee meetings, had led on that they knew that he was from God, or else God couldn't, that he couldn't do the things that God would. Nicodemus didn't say, I know you're from God, because you couldn't do these things unless God were with you. He said, We know you're from God. Listen closely, and we'll lay it out in more details. We get to it some more next week. When God opens your eyes to the truth about salvation, and you know its truth, but reject it, you are attributing to Satan the things of God or the things of the Spirit. How are we saved? The Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Who draws us? Whose work is the drawing? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that draws people. It's the Holy Spirit that opens people's eyes. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us understand truth. Paul even said, if I'm, what I'm preaching makes sense to you, God's opened your eyes. If it doesn't make sense, Satan's blinded your eyes. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. We don't think that if you word it a certain way, they'll get it. That means, you're, oh, you're not denying yourself if you think if you word it a certain way, you'll get it. That's putting confidence in yourself. Do you understand? Man, that frees me up when I go to teach and preach. I don't worry about whether I do a good job or a bad job in the sense of that. I want to preach in the Spirit, letting God, trusting that God will do His work. And when the Spirit of God draws you and you reject that, and you know it's truth, and you've had your eyes opened, guess what? When you die, there's no forgiveness 
By the way, Jesus died on the cross and forgave all sins. The Bible tells us that. You can look at that in Colossians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. Things in heaven, things on the earth, things under the earth. And he was not counting men's sins against them. At the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world. Don't hear me say that the whole world's going to heaven. Because even though Jesus paid for the sins of the world and now it's offered by God as a free gift, you have to receive the gift by faith. It was paid for, everybody was forgiven in that sense, yet at the same time, now we need to be reconciled to God by receiving that forgiveness, which was already paid for by faith. And the Spirit of God then goes and opens people's eyes to this truth. And when they open, their eyes are open to the truth, and they understand this truth, and then they reject it. That's the only thing that wasn't covered by Jesus on the cross. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit you're attributing to Satan the things of the Spirit. Go with me to Hebrews real quick, chapter 6. That's why there are passages that make people think you can lose your salvation because of how they're worded. But remember, Jesus himself said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. The Bible is very, very clear that if you have been sealed by the Spirit of God, you are saved and eternally secure. But listen closely to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 9. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Doesn't the Bible say some seed falls on the rocky soil, sprung up, some seed falls on the thorny soil, springs up? But they had their eyes opened. They experienced the power of the Spirit. They tasted of the heavenly gift. By the way, have there been things you've tasted but you didn't swallow? These are people that tasted of the truth. They knew the truth. And they deliberately walked away. The Bible says there's no other forgiveness for that. That's a serious business. The Pharisees knew they did not want to accept it. Why? Because it would... Well, how did they word it? If we keep letting this guy, Jesus, doing this stuff, we'll not only lose our, our uh, place in Rome, but also our position. That's why Jesus said, you better count the cost. To follow me means I'm everything. I'm not a part of your life. Oh, I'm a believer too. No. He's everything. Go to Hebrews chapter... 10. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. The Bible says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, this is again, after hearing the salvation, knowing about it, and then just choosing not to accept it, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Hang on for a second before I read anymore. Put a bookmark here. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3. You're in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Uh, back up to verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Jump over to chapter 5 of 1 John. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is talking about an unbeliever. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer, so there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here again, the scripture says, if you understand the truth and God's opened your eyes and you choose to reject this salvation, you've trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant. You've insulted the spirit of grace, which has called you. And actually, the Bible says 
Even though you were sanctified, you were forgiven, you rejected it. Remember Matthew 18 where Jesus tells the story of the man who had this huge debt and he went and he begged the guy, please, you know, I'll pay you back. And the guy forgave the whole debt. But then he goes and he grabs his other servant who owed him a little bit and he choked him. And that guy says, please forgive me and I'll give you a chance. And he wouldn't forgive his neighbor. And then what does that guy find out that if forgiving them the big debt finds out, what does he do? He casts him into the prison until he can pay the last penny. And for years it bothered me. It's like, Lord, this man was forgiven. And now he's going to go to hell. He's going to go and be punished forever and ever. And then God opened my eyes. Oh, he was forgiven, but he never received the forgiveness because the evidence, the fact that even though he was forgiven that he didn't receive it was how he treated his neighbor. Folks, there are people. We've seen it. If you've been walking with Christ any length of time, you know there are those who... Man, they were among us, and all of a sudden they walked away. They, they understood. I know they understood. I'm sure they were believers. The Bible says they never were. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but their going showed that they were never of us, because if they were, they would have stayed. It's a serious thing to have your eyes open to the truth and then reject it. And that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We'll deal with it some more when we come back next time. I love you. We'll see you next week.